Thank you, uh, Richard and Maddie, and for the band for lovely worship this morning already. It's good to see you. Uh, if you turn to the back of the notice sheets where the study notes are, you'll see a, a picture, a painting by a man called Charlie Mackelsey. And this picture, you may find, brings up different emotions or thoughts in you, and it comes as a sort of health warning at the beginning of this talk, because we're going to be talking about God as a good father, among other things. And uh, oh, father is such a loaded word, isn't it, in our society and culture today. It may be loaded in your heart. There may be sadnesses, disappointments, difficulties. If you, if you turn back a page um, to the, on, in a, deeper into the study notes, you'll see the grey text box. And a summary of words that a man called Mark Stibbe used in several books he had on fathers. And he, he said that for many of us, fathers in our culture... Um, have been impatient or deserting, maybe deliberately or uh, through no fault of their own, harsh or absent, overbearing, not overbeing, overbearing, <laughs> distant, unforgiving, judgmental, misery, and demanding. There's all these sort of words that seem to fit with different people's perceptions of sometimes good or adequate parents, but yet there's something about the father relationship that can just get right under your skin, even if it's been pretty good. I wonder, I wonder why that is. Why did Lucian Freud pe put people on his uh, couch and say, tell me about your father, um, if he didn't have anything else to say to them? Uh, well, what's the reason that father have such an impact on us, even in a society where, where men are almost superfluous now um, to requirements for, uh, for society development. It's a big issue, isn't it? Fathering. And even just beginning to think about it, you see minefields to walk into. We've got our own personal minefields. There's the minefields of how other people hear it. And there's stuff that might be going on in our heads. Maybe if you're a father yourself, a sort of sense of Yep, I can relate to most of those words. <laughs> that was me this morning. <laughs> Impatient, judgmental, unforgiving. Uh, that was just me getting out of the house this morning, let alone a, a sort of CV of a lifetime. And the opposite of being patient with us, waiting for us, compassionate to us, running towards us, affectionate with us, etc. I mean, how hard to attain to that sort of thing. I, I've got kids, as most of you know, and um, one of them's now a very bright 10-year-old, and, uh, and uh, she started looking at children's films or children's books and going, yes, they're dead again, aren't they? And it's, it's almost like every children's book or story or film has to have a, a dead parent or both parents, the biggest selling uh, books of our, our generation, and of course the Harry Potter books, which have made over a billion pounds for J.K. Rowling, and it predicates on the fact that Harry Potter's an orphan. That's the whole point of the whole story, and then he has this relationship with Albus Dumbledore, who has this sort of father-like figure who seems pretty much perfect to him, and so you get to the final books, which is a slight spoiler alert, where he, he, he discovers that Dumbledore is um, less than perfect through the eyes of Dumbledore's brother, Albus, um, uh, the other one, whatever one, um, and, um, and has that sort of image eroded. And even the people who step into the role for us, if it's been imperfectly fulfilled, step in 
imperfectly, don't they? There are whole swathes of the Christian church where there's a man standing up the front with one of these things on in the middle of their shirt, um, often in robes, and people call them Father, even though Jesus Christ specifically said, let no one call you Father. (laughs) Billions of people around the world call their priests Father. Why? Because there's a bit of us that's desperate for that father figure to say you're okay you're fine you're important and in our our passage today we're looking in at at Jesus and you've got to remember that Jesus hasn't necessarily had this easy up to now if you heard the talk just before Christmas uh, Peter gave there's very very good reasons to suggest that the man that he called father Joseph the carpenter And there would have been questions right from the beginning about legitimacy. People would have been calling him a bastard or all sorts of things like that in a culture where that was a big deal. There's a good reason to suggest that Joseph will have died by this point. So the man that he would have known as a nurturing father who did an incredible job looking after him even though he wasn't his own child would have endured all sorts of community abuse and scandal for it. Now God. And Jesus is now at the age of maturity. In the Jewish religion, there were two ages of maturity, one at 13, your bar mitzvah that we still know today, and the other one at 30. We seem to have reclaimed that in 21st century living, that you can be a child till you're 30. Um, and, And here is Jesus breaking through into full adulthood. And at the beginning of this, he's about to embark on three grueling years of public service, life, and ministry. And God the Father decides to speak into his life in a very public and direct way. Have a look at what he says down in verse 11. It's possibly in the top five most important verses in the scripture. A voice came from heaven and said, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. You're my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. Actually, this voice comes twice more in Jesus' life. One, when he's on a Mount of Transfiguration, and the voice again affirms him in such a way. And once more in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's about to go to the cross. But at the very beginning of his life, Jesus needs affirmation. Isn't that interesting? A man who's never done anything wrong, he's got no reason to feel guilt or shame. A man who's got no big major issues going on in his life. Loving mother, has been brought up well by an incredible stepfather. Needs to hear three things. You're loved, accepted, and valued. You're significant. You're secure. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I'm well pleased. Extraordinary to hear. I wonder if anyone or who, who, if anyone, has spoken words of deep affirmation into your life. Can you, can you recall the moment where someone's affirmed you in a way that has really registered for you? It might be the teacher who pushed you on to that next level of study. It might be a grandparent who was always there for you. Might be a mother or a father. Might be 
a partner, a spouse, a husband, a wife. But almost always, even the best of affirmations from someone around us falls short of really penetrating deeply into us, doesn't it? Have you noticed that? I was watching a uh, series this weekend and a, uh, a mother was trying to affirm her son, saying, I love you, I love you, I love you. But she'd just been off in an unplanned detox from the addiction that she had. And so she'd been absent for three or four days. And you could tell that the words, which were the perfect words, weren't falling as deeply into the boy's heart as he'd want them to because the actions didn't back up the words. And so often that's our experience, both in giving and receiving, isn't it? Words are easy, perhaps. But oh, to be affirmed by someone that you totally respect is saying the things to you that really count. Now, of course, we have a, a counter thing in our culture today, and it's a total parody and totally unfair on a whole generation, but we, we have this concept that today's younger generation coming through are called millennials, or, and they're often called in the public domain snowflake generation, aren't they? You'll have heard that term. And, and the idea is that they've been brought up in lovely nurturing schools, and some of you are school teachers, and, and they've, they've been in... Um, races where they've come 18th and they've got a gold medal for coming 18th and everyone's been applauded for being fantastic. You're amazing, aren't you? Well done for, you know, being last effectively. Uh, and in a parody I was watching was this, this extraordinary thing, this, this guy saying, yeah, I don't need to work hard because um, I can get affirmed for just being as good as I am right now and that's easier <laughs> than working hard to become something that, that I want to be. Of course, it's a, it's a parody, it's, it's unfair. Um, but there, there's a bit of us that would like to be affirmed for you know, just, just the way I am, is how it's put in Bridget Jones' diary, isn't it? You see, he loves me just the way I am. That appalling film that I've been made to watch far too many times. <laughs> <laughs> he loves me just the way I am. Um, and there's a bit of that that that's sort of what we want. But, but actually, we also want to be the one with whom someone is well pleased as well. Yeah? There's a bit of us that would like to be able to admire ourselves as well. I sometimes do talks for teenagers, and I, I remember sitting down with some teenagers and saying, who do you admire in life? And an unsurprising list came back. You know, it was Mother Teresa's Gandhi. The odd little kid goes, my father, which is always cute. Um, and... And a few things like that, but it's, it's generally people who have done extraordinary sacrificial things. They go, that's a selfless person, I really admire that. Yeah, does that make sense? If I gave you the pop quiz, I bet those names would have come up again. And they say, well, what do you want to do with your life? Well, who do you want to be? I want to be rich, I want to be famous, I want to... And there's a sort of gap between the, I'm prepared to pay the cost, and I want the easy streets, as the uh, musical says. Interesting, isn't it? 
And God's saying to Jesus here, I'm well pleased with you. Now, the reason that this verse is, I think, within the top five most important verses in Scripture is because Jesus needed this pattern of, of God saying, you're my son whom I love with you, I'm well pleased. But it's also a pattern that God wants to give to all of those that he adopts as his, as his in, the old, in the New Testament terms, as his sons, which means his heirs. You know the phrase son and heir? Um, it's only a few generations ago that you were only the heir if you were the, the son, yeah? You've all watched Downton Abbey and other things. It's, it's, you're required to be male to be the heir. Of course, now in our culture, it would just be written sons and daughters because we have equal rights and that, thank goodness. Um, but he wants to adopt us as his son and heir as well. Now, you, you may remember that the Roman adoption system is, is different to ours. And basically, what you would you would do is you'd, you'd find one of your servants, which were known as slaves, but they were pretty much like a bureaucratic uh, thing. It wasn't, don't, don't sort of think uh, North America slavery, think you know, just like normal workers. And the, if you really like one of them, you would say, you're now my son. You're in my family. You are going to inherit from me. And the extraordinary thing about the adopted children was they couldn't be disowned once they'd been adopted. Natural children, fed up with them, bye-bye, <laughs> off you go. That's what should have happened to the prodigal son. Bye-bye, you're disowned, not got anything to do with you anymore. But if you've adopted them in as a son, hey, that's it. They're carrying your name forever. And that's what God wants to offer to us. But the thing is, like, how do you make the grade to be in this Jesus status here? How do you get adopted in to the family? What is it that makes God want to love us and care for us and even be pleased with us? Like, does he do as, let's say, the Muslims or JWs believe, does he do like a tally of our life and see if it balances out? It's almost like the folk religion as well of our country, isn't it? You know, I've been good, Ish. <laughs> does, he, does he do Italian? No, he doesn't. It's much more secure than that, thank goodness. Because sin is just a matter of opportunity and thinking you can get away with it. Almost every human being would sin extraordinarily if they thought they could get away with it or the need was, was there. There's very few things that hold us back with incivility. In our inside places, we're, we're quite a mess. Why would he adopt us? Well, on one level, he adopts us and loves us and is pleased with us because of an incredible transaction that's occurred. Instead of just seeing you anymore when he looks at you, if you've chosen to follow Jesus Christ and ask him to be your personal saviour, your Lord, instead of looking at you and seeing you, he now sees Jesus which is extraordinary, isn't it? So on your, like, UCAS form or your CV or whatever uh, for getting through heaven, it's not that you have to answer the question at the pearly gate from St. Peter and if you get it wrong, you've failed. It's like, here you are. I'm, I'm, I've come here as Jesus, born Bethlehem. <laughs> Nazareth grew up 